0: I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right, well, welcome back everyone. I got a really uh, special guest with me uh, today I have a fellow by the name of Clive Kinross. Clive is uh, is not only a very successful entrepreneur, but one of my oldest friends, as well as one of my first bosses, which we could talk about a uh, a little later. But Clive uh, started his career as an accountant in South Africa, moved to Canada, became a founder of a company called Open Lane, which was sold to Odessa, uh, which was a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ, then became, uh, actually took a, took a little bit of time off, but not too much as, uh, as most entrepreneurs can't help themselves, but uh, get, get back into the thick of things. And then uh, founded a company called MoneyKey, which is a very fast growing fintech company based in the US, well, based in Canada, but doing business in the US. And uh, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to hearing Clive's journey. So Clive, welcome. Thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks
0: for having me. I'm excited to be here. Should be fun. <laughs> so, Clive, I know it's, it's really easy for us to jump into COVID and everything related to COVID. And, and maybe we will touch on that throughout this podcast. But I really want to focus on, uh, on other things because I think it's really too much conversation, especially right now, about uh, you know what's, what's in front of us. I think it's time to maybe look a little bit more into the future and learn lessons from the past. So to start us off, we'd, we'd love to hear the beginning parts of your journey and we can kind of walk through your story. You know, how does a, a young accountant in South Africa land up being a you know, multiple time successful CEO in Canada? I mean, talk, talk us through you know, the beginning part of your journey.
1: I'm an accountant by, uh, by profession, but an entrepreneur by inclination. And uh, in South Africa, um, the reason that I studied accounting, there's a couple of reasons for it. The first thing is my father's an accountant, and he, he sat us down one day and he said, Guys, you know, we get about one set of textbooks to <laughs> be. And uh, my brother and I both decided to be accountants, and we studied hard, and ultimately we got our chartered accountant designation. But most of the successful CEOs in South Africa, were child of accountants, and that was the impetus. Um, I never had any ambitions of going into the profession. Um, always had ambitions of of being an entrepreneur or being a CEO, and that was just kind of part of the toolkit. Getting the CA designation. I did my articles at Arthur Anderson. And I'm going back now to the early 90s when Arthur Anderson was still one of the big accounting firms out there, and in fact at the time was maybe the most reputable accounting firm, how quickly things change. In any event, I think um, it was a three-year term of articles, and in my year, I think I was the first one to hand in my resignation. The day that on my third three-year anniversary, I resigned. My wife and I went traveling around the world and Decided then that we didn't think that the future of South Africa was particularly promising. And part of the reason for our travels was to have fun. And the other part of the reason was to, to find a place to emigrate to. Um, and then we literally went all over the world and towards the end of my travels arrived in Canada. It was May at that time. Spring was, was in full bloom.
0: So you got conned into coming to Canada because you you didn't know what you were in for. (laughs) Basically, you know
1: know what it's like to be in your early 20s and be invincible and and, uh, be a little bit naive and not necessarily hear the warning signs, but more hear the positive things that people tell you. We put in our residency at the end of our trip. We went back to South Africa, spent a little bit of time there working for what was then the biggest publicly traded private equity fund in South Africa. Um, learned a little bit, was there for about six or seven or eight months. It was an interesting time post-apartheid, and there were a whole lot of uh, government-owned enterprises that were being privatized, so an interesting time for private equity. That company went on to do relatively well, but when my papers came through, my wife and I said, you know what, if we get more embedded in South Africa, we'll never leave, and we left right away.
0: Why Canada? I mean, you traveled around the world, I assume you went to different places what was it about Canada that kind of pulled you here? Because I, as you know, I'm a, a fellow South African myself. I never had to make the choice because my parents made the choice for me. And there are a lot of South Africans in Canada. What was the, the reason that there was this kind of big influx to Canada?
1: I think a couple of things. I think, first of all, there are a lot of South Africans here. And so when I was traveling initially through here, it was very easy to network and very easy to meet people. A good friend who was living here at the time. So that that was certainly an influence. But, but I did a lot of networking with ex-South Africans who had been successful over here. Um, and in fact, when my papers came through, one of the people that I met during my travels said to me, Clive, if you're still coming, I'm starting a new um, real estate fund. Um, Investing in residential projects, if you're interested, we have an opportunity for you right now. So there was some happen chance over there. I wish I could say that it was a sophisticated thought process. And I could tell you that there were many years um, after immigrating to Canada where I asked myself the question, why did I choose Canada? I can tell you that, you know, 20, 22, 23 years on, I'm very happy with my decision to have moved here, but there were certainly times when, when, when I questioned it. And the reasons I questioned it were obviously the weather is a big variable, and also it's very far from South Africa. And culturally, Canada seemed like a soft landing because the people were all so nice, and I thought, wow, it's going to be easy to get ahead over here. But realised in time that, you know, Canadians are very tough. They're nice, but they're very tough. They live in very difficult weather conditions and tough circumstances. And while they may not be outwardly tough and the kind of tough that a 26 or 27-year-old can pick up on, it took me a long time to realize that they're they're tough and it's going to be difficult to break in, first of all, into the culture and second of all, into the business community. But they're also, you know, it's it's been a wonderful country and uh, I love just about everything about it except for the weather.
0: I always like, you know, this podcast call is called The Dealmaker's DNA. And the reason I, I call it that is because I really do believe that there are components that certain people are born with and that nature plays a, a very large component in people being leaders and people being entrepreneurs. And I'm not a huge believer that you could be anything you want to be. And we can debate that later on. And I'd love your opinion later on. But one of the things that I always get a, a sense from from fellow entrepreneurs is they're born with that kind of intuition that vision but then they have the intestinal fortitude to actually jump you know head first your first vision was south africa was not the place for you long term and that you had to make a move have you found it easy in your life to kind of not predict the future but at least have a viewpoint of what you have to do long term for you you and your career and then secondly what is it about you that's, that's led you to actually do it because a lot of people say things, but very few actually put it into action, is what, what, what I've found. I wish I could say that I have
1: any grand visions. I think, number one, I've been very, very fortunate in the people that I've surrounded myself with in my life. You know, I was reading an article probably 25 years ago that resonated with me a lot, and at the time, it was, it was about the 100 wealthiest self-made people in the United States. And they did, a, they did a study to see what are the commonalities amongst these people. Was it the business school they went to? Did they go to an Ivy League school? Did they study something in particular? Um, and there was no direct correlation to the 100 wealthiest people and anything like that. The only area where they found correlation is at some point of these people's lives, they surrounded themselves and had a mentor who was incredibly successful. And, and that resonated with me, and I think one of the biggest turning points in my life was after being here for about a year and actually being incredibly unhappy um, in my first venture with that, uh, with that real estate uh, private equity fund. Um, I met a gentleman um, who you know very well, Elaine, Happens to be my mentor as well. <laughs> yeah, it happens to be your mentor as well. Uh, he, took, he took a liking to me and I think at the time he saw something in me um, that I couldn't even see in myself. Uh, my confidence was relatively low having been here for a while and I uh, wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. I, I always had a burning desire to be an entrepreneur but didn't know quite how to get there and how to get started and so on and so forth. Um, And having him as a sounding board and somebody who believed in me and so on and so forth through the process helped me develop a lot of confidence, helped me think critically about business, how to analyze a business, how to analyze certain industries and so on and so forth. And it was a gradual process from there to me really building confidence um, and finding myself and ultimately having the confidence to take the jump and start a business. So I think finding a mentor and somebody who's been there and done it is an absolutely critical part of the journey.
0: So I don't think that answered your question. Yeah, no, it's, uh, and I'll challenge you a little bit on that because I think that uh, I know you well and I know that you're a humble guy. But we'll get back to you know my viewpoints on being born with certain qualities. But it's interesting that you speak about that early stage of building that, 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 that first business, which I know is a company called Open Lane and we're going to talk about that story I guess now. Typically, those early years of, of startup build is where it usually breaks you. What was it about those early years that actually helped build your confidence? Because I have to imagine and, and I want to hear the story from you, but typically, a startup's journey is fraught with different turns and tr- tr- you know, turbulations and all sorts of different challenges that come up. Maybe we could talk about that journey, but also about what about that journey helped build your confidence. and. What about that journey helped you realize what your kind of core skill sets, you know, that have ultimately led to your success?
1: Yeah, never mind that. Built by confidence, as you say, there were times when my confidence was pretty broken. I mean, it was a uh, building open lane was an incredibly, uh, an incredibly challenging journey. When I look back on my entire life, since I was a young kid, I've always been very goal driven and I've always had a certain vision for myself. And there's always been a whole lot of things that I wanted to do in my life. Some of them were very challenging. You know, when I arrived in high school in South Africa, um, you were given colors for different sports and that type of thing. My first day of high school, I saw the the kids in their final high school year called Matric in South Africa. Some of them had colors. And there and then in my mind, I said, when I get to Matric, I'm going to have more colors than anybody else.
0: I want to talk about that point. Because I think a lot of people... Say they want to do those things and say they're goal-oriented, but there are a select few that when they say it, they actually do it. Have you found, because I've definitely found that there is something about those people that actually do it, that there is a commonality. There is this like extreme like nature, there's this competitiveness that is hard to articulate. I don't think others who who don't achieve those goals are less than. I just think that they're wired differently. They just they they, they don't have that kind of like that loose uh, wiring in their brain.
1: <laughs> I think you call, I think you're calling me crazy. And there's definitely uh, there's definitely a streak that is. But there's you know I think that to be able to be successful, there are major major challenges in being an entrepreneur, and perseverance and not giving up, um, and having an incredibly high pain threshold is one of the things that I, that I agree with you. It's, it's pretty unique. You know, there's one thing talking about it. There's another thing when business just isn't happening and the vision that you have isn't transpiring the way you think it will or would, nor as quickly as it would, and either you're going to persevere and not give up and be that kind of a person or you're not. And, you know, lots of people speak about being driven by success, and I think about that a lot, but I think, I think what drives me more than success is the desire not to fail. And when confronted with failure, it's not something I ever want to have to deal with. And that's what motivates me to carry on going against all odds. And I do, think, um, I do think it's a rare quality, sometimes to a fault. I've never given up, but I've never given up. And I've got to tell you, one of the most important things in being an entrepreneur is to never, ever, ever give up because there's a lot of days where it seems like it's the, the reasonable, plausible thing
0: to do. And how much do you think of that mentality comes from your upbringing? How much do you think of it? You know, we'll touch on this DNA side for a little bit. How much of it do you think you were just inherently, it's like in your DNA, it's just like how you were born? I think a lot of
1: it's how I was born. I think a lot of it's how I was born. I mean, me and you, uh, me and you have got a, a peloton uh, competition that we're having in the middle of COVID over here. We're both highly competitive individuals, which is one of the reasons that two guys who are not traditionally cyclists, or about to break new records on Peloton, and I'm saying that half-jokingly. But when I was growing up, I was highly competitive, and it was a part of me and a part of my personality you know, that I kept deeply hidden, even though it was obvious to anybody that that I was highly competitive. And I kept it hidden because I thought it was a flaw of mine, that I was so competitive, sometimes with friends and sometimes with family and so on and so forth. And as I've gotten older, I've embraced that part of my personality. Um, And I think it's a very, very important part of being successful, provided it's channeled correctly. And there's very few people that I've met in my life. Again, I don't say this to, uh, to brag or give myself a pat on the back because I think it cuts both ways. But there's very few people that I've met that are as competitive as I am and as driven as I am. As I've gotten older, I've tried to channel that energy into being competitive with myself. Rather than competitive with the world, because it's a big world, and if you're competitive with everybody, you're going to be losing to a lot of people, and that's just the path to being miserable in your life. But certainly, it's helped me channel channel my energies to being successful.
0: And on that note, I mean, I know you're you're a father. Uh, I am too. What did your parents do to you know foster that competitive spirit, that that belief in yourself, that confidence? And what are you doing with your children? Like, are there are there some central themes that have that you think have played a really good role in helping? Because I think that there are people that are born a certain way, but then don't achieve the outcomes that they that they could have because you know maybe their nurture was off. Were there certain things you look back on and say, God, I'm really glad my my parents did X, Y, and Z.
1: All the values that I have today, and I, and I think our, our real values do get tested in business, not our theoretical values. And I think the people that I've worked with over the years, yet you know co-founders or executives or business partners will turn around and tell you that that my integrity is second to none and the values that I have of integrity and honesty and hard work and loyalty and so on and so forth are second to none. And then that's stuff that I learned from my parents, you know for sure, my mother and father were that way and they didn't take themselves too seriously. That's another thing is uh, hopefully I don't take myself too seriously. I take what I do very seriously and I'm very driven, but I don't take myself too seriously. I think that's the way that we were brought up um, and it enabled me, I suppose, to connect with a team and to build teams and to relate to people. The business side and the business acumen, I suppose, uh, came from my studies and also uh, f- through Mike, uh, my mentor, who was who was an outstanding uh, and is still to this day an outstanding guide and an outstanding mentor in my life. But the values of hard work and integrity and so on and so forth were, were from the home that I grew up in, and thank God it was a very loving home. It was a very safe home. You know, beautiful place to grow up. And I think a lot of that energy I took into the into the businesses that I
0: founded. Let's go back. I mean, you know, now you've you've arrived in in Canada. You had that first. Uh, experience in the residential real estate that you didn't like. You then you know met met up with Mike and you started this company called Open Lane, or at the time it was called On Lane, I believe. Just walk through. I know this was a you know, we're talking about a 15-year journey, but just walk through kind of the progression of that business, you know, some of the more foundational or some of the more transitional parts of that story and some of the key lessons, you know. Some, really what I'm trying to to, to accomplish through these podcasts is there's a lot of younger entrepreneurs that that want to learn about the lessons that we've gone through to get to where we're at so you know hopefully they they don't make same mistakes because i know that we've made mistakes of course and then that they learn from uh, you know the things that that we've doubled down on i'd love to hear your thoughts on some of those things that uh, have played a key role i mean we talked about mentorship but let's talk about the actual journey and and finding your skill set through that journey and some of those key lessons you learned? I think the first thing,
1: you know, when I
0: ultimately... The arrangement that I had with Mike he had
1: just taken CapReed Public, the first apartment we listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, and he was involved in that as well as a whole host of other businesses. And uh, he met me and he said, I'll give you a small little office with a computer and a laptop and ultimately we'll back you to start a business. It was kind of that type of a loose arrangement. And uh, I would do research in a whole host of industries. This was in the late 90s, and we would meet um, for an hour or so a week. And I would debrief with them what I'd learned and what I was thinking, and so on and so forth. And, so forth. and what we quickly discovered is that I wasn't thinking big enough. You know? And what, what Mike said to me, said to me, Clive, it's very difficult. I remember this to this day. He said, It's very difficult for guys in their 20s to really be thinking big you know, thinking of being an entrepreneur is daunting enough, let alone thinking of being an entrepreneur in huge industries, which which ultimately can change industries and change the world and so on and so forth. He said at the end of the day, when you take that jump and when you take that leap, there's no turning back. So take your time in figuring out what you want to do, number one. And number two, pick a big industry. Pick a big industry because if it's a big industry or if it's a small industry, you're still going to be busting and they're still going to be working 12 hours a day for the next day for many years. And a lot of people get trapped into a small industry without necessarily big opportunities. And uh, some of the smartest people work hard to create small businesses. But if we pick something that's a really big business, with, that's underserved, the underserved market and so on and so forth, we could build a big business. So that was, that was the first insight. And I realized what was getting in the way of me thinking big enough, and it was confidence, and can I really do that, and so on and so forth. So, again, with his guidance, um, we started looking at the used car industry. I won't get through the whole research um, base, but the reason we looked at the used car industry is auto is one of the biggest industries in North America, and the used car industry just had some incredible fundamentals where if we got into the middle of that industry, between institutional sellers of used vehicles like captive finance companies, daily rental companies, banks, so on and so forth, and the car dealers who buy those cars, we could create um, a business that was vastly superior to the way that cars are currently or were then currently distributed. That was the premise of the business, and there were some big brick-and-mortar auto auctions who currently facilitated the sale and distribution of used cars. So our business was a transformational business model whereby with the internet, there were better ways of distributing um, and selling these cars. And we thought, let's, let, let's do this. What I learned pretty quickly is even though there was a tremendous value proposition, both to the sellers of those vehicles and well, as well as the buyers of those vehicles, we still needed to change human behavior. And changing human behavior, so a business model that's predicated on transforming the way people behave, is an incredibly difficult and incredibly challenging thing to do even if it makes tons of sense, people are setting their ways, they have relationships, they have people in companies they do business with. And if you're gonna get in, into the middle of it, you better have a really compelling value proposition and you better have capital and time because ultimately it takes way longer in my experience.
0: It is so interesting how people don't understand that just because it makes sense doesn't mean it's gonna work. And that you know, we are creatures of habit. They see some of the outlier stories like an Uber, you know, which changed human behavior quite quickly. But the reality is most things happen much more gradually than than people give it credit.
1: Yeah, I think it was Bill Gates who, you know, who says that he tends to overestimate the impact that new industries and new technologies will have over kind of a, you know, a one to two year time frame. And he tends to underestimate the impact that they'll have over a 10 to 20 year time frame. Now, when you're a hard-driving, you know, young founder, 10 years is an eternity. So it's a kind of insight and wisdom that you could look back in hindsight, but getting to that 10-year mark and having ultimately get there is exceptionally challenging. And, I, you know, we did a ton of research. I remember going to car dealers with the model in place and saying, this is what we want to do. If we got cars like this, would you buy cars from us? And, you know, they'd be drinking a cup of coffee and say, absolutely. And we launched the business and we had the vehicles up from excellent institutions and none of the car dealers would come and buy vehicles from us. And I went to, back to the same people and I said, so we've got the cars, you said you would be buying the cars, why are you not doing it? And they said, well, I actually don't know. You know, we buy cars from Luigi and you know, I've known him for a long time. And um, him and my daughter, his daughter and my daughter are at school together We often go for walks together. We send one another birthday presents. That's just the way it's always been. And breaking through those relationships, even if the process is vastly better, just does take time. So, you know, ultimately, where we started getting traction, again, establishing a marketplace for used cars between buyers and sellers online makes all the sense in the world once you're at critical mass. The fundamental question is how do you get to critical mass in the first place? Ultimately, what we started doing is partnering with captive finance companies whereby we would um, remarket, set up processes to remarket um, the end of lease portfolios. And we said to them, not only should they give us all of their vehicles, but if they could give us their entire dealer network, we could create private label websites whereby they could sell their vehicles to their dealers in a website that looks like it's their branded website.
0: Was there a transformational deal that you remember happening that kind of changed that whole business? I know you, you you spoke about those end of lease deal. Was was there one particular deal that kind of changed it all? Yeah, for sure there
1: was. I remember, and and just just bear with me. I remember in our first auction after taking about a year and a half of R and D. Our first auction, we had 24 cars. We sold four. I came home and my wife was standing there with a bottle of champagne after, you know, after watching me go through quite painstaking R&D process. And I said to her, Kill, I can't drink that champagne. There's nothing to celebrate. We sold four cars today. I mean, our next auction in those days was a couple of weeks later. This time we had 22 cars up. We sold two that day and I came home and my wife was excited to hear how it went. And she said, how did it go? And I said, you know, only two cars sold today and 22 listed. We're heading in the wrong direction. Forget about the champagne, but if we've got a bottle of vodka, I'm happy to drink that. And, you know, that's, that's what it was like for about six months or so, just plodding along, trying to find an, an angle, trying to find a strategy that would ultimately translate into real volumes and so on and so forth. And uh, I was at a conference and uh, met, met a gentleman who was heading up remarketing for Citigroup in the U.S., he just took a shining to me, you know, and that's one of the things as an entrepreneur is you can't have a sharp bone in your body there and hustling and talking and not only not have a sharp bone in your body, but also learn the gentle art of persuasion and how to get along with all sorts of different people and be curious and speak to them and so on. And he just just took a liking to me, and he said, "Come into my office, offices, they were in Dallas, and we'll speak about how we could put a program together." And we did that. I remember flying down and meeting with him and we spoke about the program and I left there being quite optimistic. In those days, he said, we'll give you all of our, our lease end vehicles prior to them going to physical auto auctions. I won't get into the whole logistics of it. We don't have time for that. And then he said, I'll also give you my group of, of my top dealers who buy our vehicles. And in so doing, you could bring those two aspects together in an online auction. And it absolutely just took off. And when it took off, we started getting incredible publicity. I was asked to speak at, um, you know, the various trade conferences that happen every year. And pretty soon, Citi's competitors started uh, taking my calls. Lots of them weren't open to my calls prior to that. Either they didn't want to be seen as following Citigroup, or alternatively, they were also set in their ways with relationships with auto auctions and so on and so forth. But again, through lots of perseverance and relationship building, and delivering outstanding results, we started getting more and more of the fleet and lease companies to do business with us, and we had an incredible um, niche in that in that industry. We also um, won won the, the the Volkswagen Canada finance business, so that was our first stronghold in Canada, uh, where they gave us all of their end of lease vehicles in Canada as well as their dealers. And it was kind of the same formula, you know. We started getting publicity around around the initiative. I started getting speaking engagements. The head of remarketing at VW Canada Credit um, started getting speaking engagements, and, and I remember her career started getting more profile, and so on and so forth. And through that, we slowly but surely started winning more accounts. It was a very uh, slow sales process. You're working with you know Fortune 100 companies, and they don't move particularly quickly with anything. So we needed we needed that patience on the one hand. But on the other hand, pushing really, really hard to get their business. And ultimately, uh, we had two strongholds, one on the captive finance side and the other on the fleet lease side. And from there, we we grew into other segments um, of the used car market, like daily rental companies, where ultimately we had exclusives with the likes of Avis, Budget, Enterprise. Hertz, um, and a host a host of other Dollar Thrifty, a host of other daddy rental companies. But all of that took, took the best part of 10 or 11
0: years. You're going over it in a 90-second uh, spiel, but the reality is uh, every single one of those is probably uh, years in the making, all those deals.
1: Yeah, absolutely years in the making. And the other part that's years in the making is building the team. But fast forward to when we started in the office, we built that business to, you know, a business that had about 600 employees. We uh, were, were, you know, at our peak selling between forty and 50,000 used cars a month. And I say at our peak because that was just just prior to the global financial meltdown in 2008 when we were getting set to take that business public on the NASDAQ. Uh, which obviously didn't happen. I've lived through, uh, I've lived through a couple of uh, black swan events like we're going through at the moment. That was one of them. And in 2008, we had to do a very big reduction in force. The whole uh, automotive industry got turned on its head. To cut a long story short, we sold that business to Odessa two or three years later after doing a merger with one of our competitors in 2006. So, you know, I'm telling the story, you know, forward, backward, sideways, but we did a merger in 2006.
0: Let me ask you that merger for a second because I'm a CEO that's built businesses. I haven't really acquired for an existing kind of operating company like Firepower. What did you learn through that merger and uh, you know, I'm sure there were qualities in yourself that you had to develop more, you know, going through that, uh, you know, kind of cultural shift because every business has completely different cultures. I mean, what were the big lessons you learned through that process?
1: Yeah, culture a big one, you know, and everybody will tell you when you do these mergers, it's the, the easy part is figuring out kind of the financial engineering and, you know, how two plus two is somehow greater than two and you could take out costs and there's synergies and all of those kind of things. The investment bankers will tell that stuff to you all day long. And I think if, if, if one were to do an MBA, you'd learn about that stuff. But I think where, where mergers fail and succeed in my experience is, is exactly on what you speak about and how the cultures mesh and uh, how the values mesh. And that is a very, very complex, complex thing. It's complex because it's hard to bring these two companies together and combine them into one company. Um, and that's maybe something that I was naive about. I thought it would be way easier. And it took me a long time to realize that there were really two companies merged into one. And uh, there were these little cliques, some on our side, some on their side. Um, and those were very, very difficult to work around. It became very challenging to get things done, uh, very frustrating. There were a lot of sleepless nights that I had, not only with what was going on team and managing through that process, but it goes all the way up to the board level. And it was incredible how the board members, depending on where they came from, had an affinity, if, either if they came from the company that we merged with, or if they came from the other side. And that created a whole new dynamic as well, where, where board members favor people who are in the company, who are with the company, for example, that they backed and so on and so forth. So there were real challenges at the board level. I remember when we did the merger, Mike said to me, you know what we're going to do, and this was five or six years into it, so I was in my early 30s, after we do the merger, we're going to go out and meet all the board members of ATC, that's the name of the company that we merged with. So we were on lane, they were ATC, we became ATC on lane, and ultimately we changed the name to open lane. But he said, let's go on and meet all the board members of ATC, he felt that that was important. And I thought to myself, I don't have the time to do that. I'm not flying around the country to meet with a whole bunch of board members. I've got a job to do. We're going to bring on business. We're going to do an incredible job bringing on the business. And if I do that, the board members will know about that. And that's more important than anything. So we didn't make those trips. And I didn't build relationships with board members. And ultimately, um, I think that was a mistake. And it never occurred to me that they would be sceptical of me. It never occurred to me that they view me as anything other than the person that was driving the growth and the success in the business. And then when it finally did occur to me, it was very, very challenging. It was very challenging both on a personal level as well as a business level to figure out how to navigate out of a situation that I never saw coming. I thought that the board members were there and first and foremost interested in the success of the business and were completely objective and didn't have egos and all of that kind of stuff. It took me a while to realize that all anybody really cared about were their own interests, not necessarily the
0: best interests of the company. That was a painful lesson. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I hear people talk about, well, especially like tech or something. They say, this isn't a people's business. This is a a tech business. The reality is you and I both know every fucking business is a people business. I mean, it's always about relationships and it's always about, like you said earlier, the art of persuasion. I mean, people need to back you, right? I mean, you you have to garner support.
1: You as the founder, as well as the team, you know, you talk about people business that, you know, I've mentioned my mentor, the other most important thing is the team. Let's
0: talk about the team. You said that it took time to build a really good team. What are the lessons that you've learned about what it takes to build a really good team and how to actually do it in practice?
1: Well, I think the one thing it takes is time. I think it takes time. You know, we were fortunate in that in both businesses, um, Money MoneyKey's name's changed to Propel, by the way. Propel was a okay. building company, and we've got a couple of different products, MoneyKey being the one and Credit Fresh being the other. Um, and in both cases, both with um, OpenLane as well as with Propel, um, I found a group of incredible uh, co-founders to launch the business with, and uh, that, was, that was kind of fortuitous. But to fill up the executive team in both cases took many years and many mistakes. You know, if you would have said to me in my 20s, how good am I at reading people? I would have said I was very good. <laughs> and through enough failures of bringing on people that I thought would be outstanding, that turned out to be dads, it took me many years to figure out how to build a team, how to spot talent, and so on and so forth. And from my perspective, it was about being authentic about who I was people with like-minded values uh, and very different skill sets to my own. I think one of the early mistakes that I made in my hiring is I looked for people who looked exactly like me in terms of their skill set, in terms of their personality and so on and so forth. And uh, that was a mistake. You know, I had those skill sets. I didn't need somebody else to have.
0: That is so interesting. I mean, that that is one of the things that I've learned as well. I kept surrounding myself. You know, for me, I, I'm like, oh, a deal maker looks like me. Someone who's a successful entrepreneur looks like me. And the reality is, you're right. Like, that's a skill set I have. And it was becoming self-aware enough to know what my strengths weren't, and complementing it with uh, people that had the strengths where I was weak. Where it became, you know, kind of a eureka moment for me. And then what's led to some of our business success is bringing in people. That complemented my weaknesses. And I think it's it's very difficult for people to kind of fight their ego and be like, I'm it's okay not being strong everywhere.
1: Well, I think I think not only is it okay not being strong everywhere, but what, what I've learned is after a while we've got to play into our strengths. If you're playing basketball, you want Shaquille O'Neal to play center. You don't necessarily prove his point guard skills. You want to just make sure that there's the best point guard in the world to complement any centre skills. It took me a while to realise that not only should I play into my strengths, but really all I'm interested in doing is playing into is the stuff that I'm good at anyway. And the stuff that I'm good at anyway is the only stuff that's important to the business. There's a whole host of other stuff as well. And I needed to make sure that there's people who are complementing me at areas that I'm just not good at. Um, and I've gone out to find people who are the best at what they do in the other areas of the business, number one. And number two, and perhaps even more importantly, who, have, who are aligned with me in terms of my values. Um, I think that values and culture in building a business are infinitely more important than strategy and execution.
0: How do you go through the process of looking internally and being honest with yourself and identifying those things that are your strengths and identifying those things that are your weaknesses. For some people, it's not a comfortable thing to be thinking about all the areas that you're weak. But I, I agree with you, it's so important to know yourself and to double down on those strengths and then complement your weaknesses. But a lot of people just don't go through that exercise.
1: I think a lot of it is learned on the job. So I think as entrepreneurs, we need, we need to have a certain level of confidence. And maybe when we're younger, there's, there's more hot air than real confidence. But as you go through the journey, you start realizing, wow, I'm really good at this kind of stuff. Start thinking back, why am I good at this kind of stuff? Why am I good at the financial analysis? Why am I good at putting deals together? Why am I good at kind of uh, networking and relationship building and so on and so forth? And then start realizing there's a whole bunch of weaknesses. And I think that having success allows one uh, really to be very honest and very humble. And uh, success is amazing like that. You kind of realize, well, I'm successful, so I don't need to be good at it and everything. That's kind of what very much what the process was for me. Initially, I was kind of bothered that I wasn't good at certain things. And it took me a while to accept there's nothing wrong with not being good at certain things as long as I surround myself with people who, who are good at those things, then that's important. And making sure that I spend and focus my time, A, on the stuff that I'm good at, and all of those areas that I'm not good at. First of all, making sure that I dedicate the right amount of time to at least understanding enough and being able to give guidance and counsel and so on and so forth, but bringing in people who complement those skill sets. And I've been very fortunate over the years and working with just absolutely outstanding executive teams.
0: I know we don't have a lot longer left and I know ultimately open lane landed up selling like we what like we spoke about, you know, you exited the business. I think even prior to that, what led you to a wanting to start something from scratch again? I mean, you were a proven executive that probably could have stepped into a number of roles with existing businesses, but you chose to once again start from scratch. And then how much of the experience and lessons that you learned during that whole open lane story have led to the success of Propel? And how much quicker do you think you've gotten to the point that you are at with Propel you know, versus how long that would have taken you if you would have started it without that previous experience? We ultimately
1: sold uh, Open Lane for, for just over a quarter of a billion dollars. And just just to put that into perspective, that's that's a percentage, big percentage, but still a percentage of what bankers said it was worth in two thousand and eight. I'm certainly not complaining, but you know, there's a there's a lot of luck and timing involved in the process, and uh, could have potentially been worth more in two thousand and eight. But I'm also very mindful that it also could have been worth a lot less than that at various points along the journey. Um, I was I was absolutely exhausted. I was exhausted physically and just candidly was also exhausted with with lots of the BS um, that I felt was going on with the board. And ultimately said, you know what? I just need to go on a different path. Um, and it hadn't even occurred to me at that stage that I would start another business. I had no idea what I would do. and wanted to give myself time to to reflect and figure that out. And after probably about four or five months of doing nothing, I pretty quickly concluded that I couldn't do anything other than be an entrepreneur. There's nothing else that I could possibly do, knowing myself the way that I did, other than start another business. I had gathered a little bit of energy and a little bit of focus and said, you know what, I can do this again. What I did differently in the second business, um, just in terms of analyzing the industries and so on and so forth is I first of all made the conscious decision not to start a transformational business model. I just said they too difficult, something for the 20-something year olds to start when they're naive and I don't know what they're getting themselves into. I know. So no more transformation. I'm gonna take a proven business model, just do it five or ten percent better than the competition and hopefully build an industry leader through that. So after I came to that realization it was then you know about looking at industries that were big enough They were underserved, but still proven that fitted those criteria and uh, ultimately started a fintech business providing small dollar loans um, across the United States. And that business has evolved over the last eight or nine years. So I think, first of all, the fact that it was proven was certainly the proven business model was a lesson from the first business in terms of how to build a team, in terms of the mistakes to avoid. I cannot tell you you how much easier the second business has been relative to the first one. I know, you know, which ideas are implementable versus not implementable, what the challenges are going to be down the road, how much resource as well as capital to allocate to any specific initiative and make sure we're not betting the whole business um, on any one one initiative versus another initiative, know how to launch new programs in such a way that, that it's the minimum amount of cost on the one hand, while on the other hand making sure that we get all the relevant learnings out of an initiative and these are all things that are fairly obvious, I suppose, and, you know, as I speak about them. But it took going through the process and making a lot of mistakes in the first go-around to make sure that we were more successful and more effective in the second go-around. And I think it has been. I think it's been infinitely easier, uh, this go round, and a lot of it comes down, to, comes down to experience. I also want to say it's important that I'm surrounded by just, just the most amazing, um, outstanding team. And I know everybody says that and feels that, and well, lots of entrepreneurs do,
0: and I think it's that important. I know I couldn't do this without them. So, you know, if, if there's going to be quite a few young entrepreneurs listening. If you could give them anything right now, especially now given this kind of uncertainty in the environment, what are those words of wisdom from someone? I mean, I hate using the, the terms words of wisdom because it makes you, the, makes you seem old, Clive. <laughs> um, but the, the, the reality is you have experience and, and there's a lot of people out there that could value from that experience what are those few things that you can give them that they could enact and that you think could have a meaningful impact on their future journey
1: I think the most important question is not the what question it's not what am I going to do and what's the business going to do and so on and so forth that is an important question but it's not the most important question I think the most important question is the who question. Who am I going to do it with? Who's my team going to be and who's my partner going to be? Because whatever the business is, if it's going to be a transformational business, if it's going to be kind of copying an existing business model, guaranteed and the market's going to change on you guaranteed it's not going to work out exactly the way you thought it was going to work out. You're going to have to pivot. You're going to have to change. And at the end of the day, you can only do that stuff if you're surrounded by the best doesn't matter how good the idea is. If you don't have good people, you're not gonna be able to execute. And uh, by the same token, if you have an outstanding idea, it's not gonna be an outstanding idea for very long because the competition could just come and either outperform or do something better. So to me, what I've learned over the years is the most important question is who am I gonna do this with as distinct from what am I gonna do? Somebody once told me the story about Hewlett-Packard and you know, that's two people. And uh, they got together in their first business meeting, and they sat down the two of them, and they said, "You know, we really like one another. We really respect one another. Let's go into business together." That was the basis for their relationship. And they came out of their first business meeting, and they said, "We're not sure what we're going to do, but we want to make something instead." And at the end of the day, they had two or three business, two or three failures before they founded Hewlett-Packard. But the most, before they found out what today we know is Huda-Packard, but the most important distinction over there wasn't what they did. It wasn't that it was the two of them. So the most important aspect of it is the who question, and I cannot, cannot stress that enough. Not only in finding the business, but as you continue to grow and expand the business over the years, who's part of that journey is the most critical aspect of whether you'll be successful or not.
0: On that note, I mean, I know how important mentorship has been for both you and I. How would you recommend someone who's younger go about trying to find a mentor? That's a really
1: difficult question. You know, I do think that um, as people get older, I think they get to a stage when, you, when you're kind of right in the middle of it and right in the middle of building the business. And in my experience anyway, things tend to be pretty inwardly focused, relatively selfish, relatively driven towards building a big business. Once you get to the other side of it, and tend to get a little bit older. I think giving back and being a mentor and so on and so forth becomes more of a priority and people get more satisfaction from doing that than at the stage of building the business. And I think there's a lot of successful people who want to give back and who'd like nothing better than, you know, than a young, smart, driven person listening to them, listening to their advice, seeking their counsel and so on and so forth. So I think the starting point to realise is that there's an audience there who would, who would be very happy to do it and provide their counsel. How to find the right people, I think values, and I've said it a few times as well, you need to find somebody who's got like-minded values, somebody who you could respect, somebody who could, who could show you that you could be a good person and a nice person and be successful at business, and that's, that's certainly what I had and do have. Oftentimes, that could be a family, family or family friend or a relative or so on and so forth. I think that's the obvious place to find it. But some people aren't fortunate enough to have that kind of support within their family, in which case, don't be shy. Hustle um, and don't be scared to ask people, you know, will you sit down, will you have a cup of coffee with me and let the relationship grow organically from there. But I do think having a mentor is one of the keys to success and some of the smartest young people that I've seen over the years that, that haven't gone on to be successful was just because they were misguided and didn't have that older, wiser, calmer person helping them along the journey and making sure that they
0: didn't make any critical decisions that just weren't, uh, weren't ultimately well, well thought through. I completely agree, especially young entrepreneurs who have all the energy in the world. Sometimes moving too quickly is not the right answer. Uh, sometimes taking a step back is far, far more important
1: and they're fearless. And sometimes, you know, sometimes there's an expression called blind ambition. You, you know, people can make bad decisions, bad judgment, bad values. And, you know, having, having a level head to help along the way, I think is invaluable.
0: Well, Clive, I, I promise to take an hour. It's been an hour. I, th- I thank you so much for participating. I mean, uh, I've learned a lot just listening to the story. So thank you uh, once again. Before I let you go, I have one last question for you and it's something that I'm going to be asking everyone I speak with because I'm just interested in their answer. If you had to say what, what matters most for you know, the ultimate success of an individual in an entrepreneurial environment, if it's nature or nurture, what do you think it is?
1: Nature or nurture? Wow. You know, I've spent a lot of time speaking about mentorship.
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs>
1: But I still think nature is important. I still think nature is important. I think that having some hard knocks and perseverance when you're growing up is really important in being able to withstand the knocks that are going to come your way. I don't think entrepreneurs kind of look like anything in particular. You know, Bill Gates, one of the most successful entrepreneurs, was a particularly uh, odd-looking and odd-behaving kind of 22 or 23-year-old when he started Microsoft. And there's others who've been, you know, wildly successful who look completely different to that. I think what's important is that they're strong, is that they're strong. They don't need to be loud. They don't even need to be charismatic. As long as they're strong and as long as they people, as long as they can get people to follow them, people to respect them, they're strong, they're smart. I think that's pretty important. And I don't think it's something that you could, you know, all of a sudden at age 25 or 30 or whatever, start to realize that's something that I think built up over one's lifetime to, to develop those attributes. So, it's a long way of answering, but I think it's a combination. And I definitely think, and I remember, I'll, I'll just end off on this quick story, because you did take a, I think when you were a teenager, I can't remember exactly how old you were, you took a job at Open Lane on one side. I did, a data entry clerk. <laughs> yeah, that's where, that's where we met. And uh, I remember you coming into my office one day, as a young teenager and starting to tell me everything that was wrong with the company. And uh, I thought that took real chutzpah and, and real balls at the time. I'm not sure if I was impressed or angry. Uh, <laughs> but but I, but I will say two things. Number one is your observations that you made that day were all the right ones. You were thinking, you were alert, you weren't just doing your job and you wanted to add value. And I think that, you know, when I think of you over the years, you know, that chutzpah that you have, And the charm as well that you have, uh, and being kind of highly successful, is stuff that you know. The nature versus nurture question—I could tell you for certain that you had those skills as a teenager. So you know, maybe that helps reflect it back
0: from me back
1: to you in answering that question.
0: I very much appreciate it, and uh, I've always enjoyed your mentorship as well, which I will continue to uh, to ask advice when needed. So appreciate you uh, being a part of this, and uh, for those uh, who are listening, who. Potentially want to connect with you, can they connect through LinkedIn? Is there any other way that they can get a hold of you?
1: LinkedIn is absolutely fine. Um, that, you know, Clive Kinross. And yeah, that's, that's definitely the way. And if they could refer to this podcast just so that I know where, where they heard about me from, um, that would be great. Um, I haven't, haven't done one of these things before. I'd rather just candidly, uh, from my perspective, being low profile is better than high profile. Olympic profile and business, um, from, from most of what I've seen, is, is rarely a good opportunity. But, you know, we've been on this journey together for a long time Milan, and uh, it's a real real joy to watch your growth and, you know, what you're doing out there. And uh, to be a part of this with you uh, is, is a privilege as well. So, um, you know, that's why I've kind of stepped out of what's, what I would normally typically do for a good friend and somebody that I respect tremendously as well.
0: Thanks, buddy. appreciate that. That was great. Absolutely. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.